0: The biggest difference that people draw between rhetoric and communication is a lot of communication programs just assume people are listening and they teach you how to speak. And rhetoric assumes that no one is listening. And so they teach you how to like understand an audience and speak directly to them in a way that's like persuasive and engaging. And I think that at least at that time, it was a lot easier to explore in a safe way, both like in the classroom and the digital landscape. I think some people feel now like a higher pressure because we have so many metrics around engagement and clicks and like you care about who people like this person's following this person. And I feel like some people haven't given themselves permission to like play.
1: As we start to see a full generation of digital natives, the results on society, psychology and connection are becoming more clear in startling ways. We've simultaneously gained broader connections in exchange for social inadequacy. Everybody coming online as of the last few years have been roped into a social media first world that is virtually inescapable. It's not as easy as finding alternative ways to dialogue if your social groups are congregating in the same places online where you're not. New extensions of sociology and psychology are exploring what the modern idea of a town hall means as we shift online from something that was only available physically in the past. So maybe we can even maybe take a step back, and you can introduce yourself and how you would describe yourself.
0: My name is Basad Sirjani. I'm currently a researcher at Slack.
1: Bezad and I were introduced by a friend of ours, Cece. Needless to say, I was fascinated from the start. First off, the role of researcher conjures up different thoughts that you often equate to field or lab work, and not for a digital product or service. Secondly, Slack, the messaging platform has been an interesting place that has often prided itself on reimagining digital and remote work. Together, both factors represent a crossroads we're at as a digital culture and society. We often seek meaningful work and connection, which Slack has often looked to facilitate. This combination had all the makings of a candid but topically complex discussion around Bezot's perspective and the broader world around us.
0: My undergrad was in rhetoric and media studies. And my advisor at the time was a Puerto Rican American who was super interested in how the notion of like a public sphere, like the public square, changes when it goes from being a physical space to like online. Whose voices are allowed to speak, whose voices are privileged, whose voices are hindered. What does things like anonymity empower you to do? Um, And like, how does basically the media change? And I took that and thought much more about personal relationships. So if I'm just your friend in physical space, I only know so many things about you. But then if we're friends on Facebook or for friends on Twitter, like I start to see more and more of your life Mm -hmm. and I have a different picture of you. And I was interested in how that changed.
1: Did you think that when you were embarking on this sort of educational journey that it would be as impactful as it is today, which I think is kind of the hindsight thing, right? Yeah,
0: I don't think so. And I I think this is something that I wanted to chat with you about, but like it feels like the Make and Slack is almost like what Twitter was in like 2008. Mm-hmm. Like it's a small group of like-minded people that have found a community, loosely connected. Mm-hmm. But I don't think most of us at that point thought it would be this. Mm-hmm. I was in college right when like Twitter launched and Facebook had started to scale beyond colleges, and so those things started to change. But they they hadn't permeated culture in the way that they do now. Like they, they were definitely tech focused. It was a different kind of person. Like it was basically media folks and tech folks. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas now like in Bangalore, every third phone I saw was on Facebook.
1: In the early stages of the conversation, Bezod and I lean heavily into process and education. I often have a curiosity as to what is the exact value of school in the creative world when there exists so many examples of the so-called self-taught. To Bezod, the structure to explore and the pursuit of process are the most important parts of getting an education. The one thing that I'm actually really interested is that what role do you think that having an educational foundation plays or just going to school and having like a structure on how to kind of explore ideas and concepts that arguably are very important within our everyday lives now, especially, right? So I think that that's always a kind of the push and pull, especially in some ways in the creative world is that, well, you could learn it on your own. So what is the value of actually going to school and learning the theory behind it?
0: I do feel in a lot of ways, my undergraduate degree was like a degree in common sense. Like the the biggest difference that people draw between rhetoric and communication is a lot of communication programs just assume people are listening and they teach you how to speak and rhetoric assumes that no one is listening. And so they teach you how to like understand an audience and speak directly to them in a way that's like persuasive and engaging. And I think that at least at that time, it was a lot easier to explore in a safe way, both like in the classroom and the digital landscape. I think... Some people feel now like a higher pressure because we have so many metrics around engagement and clicks and like you care about who people like this person's following this person. And I feel like some people haven't given themselves permission to like play. And so the thing that being in school gave me that I think people can find outside if they're intentional about it is just like other people who can bounce ideas off of and like a structure for how to explore.
1: So there is kind of a overlap there. There has to be a structure towards this creative path, which I think is almost the difference between art and creativity where in my eyes, creativity is really about like solving a goal or a problem. Whereas artistry is really just do whatever the heck you want. Yeah.
0: yeah I, th- I think that's really fair. I th- the so We used to have a poster at Facebook and it was a rocking horse and it said, don't mistake motion for progress. And I think there's times where you just want to move and it's okay if you're not progressing, but the, the biggest challenge I see with a lot of people who don't go to school is they don't try to build any structure and they mistake what looks like someone else's process for the goal they're moving towards. And I think, I, I would imagine in your creative pursuits, like there are times where you have to deviate from what looks like the right path to actually learn the thing you want to learn to then like get back. Mm. I know for photography, at least the way I went around, it was like I found a bunch of photos that I thought were really interesting and then I learned how to create them the right way, the wrong way, like you experiment and having the goal of like, I want to create this photo taught me a lot more than just I want to create photos. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I learned a lot about my own style and editing in that because I had an outcome I was pushing towards Mm -hmm. instead of just like, I'm going to take thousands of photos and get to like, you know, 10,000 hours of using a camera because That'll teach you how to use a camera, but it, it doesn't help you get to the thing you want. And if you yeah. don't know what you're moving towards, it's much harder to get there.
1: Process is a key to Bezod's approach and structure is the wrapper that ties it all together. He knows, though, that progression is not always linear and simple. Each one of us has our own process to follow. Sometimes it's a step backwards to reassess and move forward. When we're
0: paralyzed by critique, it affects our ability to produce things with originality. I don't know how many hours you guys put into a piece of content, but I imagine it's a lot more than most people think.
1: And no one knows how the sausage is made.
0: Right, right. Yeah. And and that's true for a lot of photos or a- any sort of like creative pursuit. There's so much work that's not visible. And I yeah. think people don't give themselves the permission to like go through that process and like know that the good work takes time.
1: You know what's interesting is I, there's this one quote I've been continually referencing. We did this story with artist named Matt McCormick, and he was saying that a lot of times people are so consumed with how long it takes an artist to create a piece of work. So let's say, you know, there's an artist who's, you know, 60 years old. People ask them, how long did it take me to create this piece of artwork? Oh, it took me like 45 years because I've been an artist for 45 years, right? Like there's all these experiences that, as you mentioned, they're not part of the actual physical act of doing it, but it's just as much part of the overall equation.
0: I do think a lot of people get, and, and like cameras are probably the best example. Whenever young amateur photographers see a photo that they really like, the first question they ask is, what did you shoot that with? Yeah. And... The reality is that you could have shot it with tons of different permutations of, you know, cameras and lenses, lighting, natural lighting, diffuse, like you can achieve the same shot in a lot of different ways. And it's like your shooting style and my shooting style are probably very different. We could use the same camera, create very different things. We could use different cameras and create the same thing. And I think that that obsession is amplified at least now by the media because we pay so much attention to what these creative things look like. Yeah. It's like, oh, I have this thing and I'm signaling, you know, that I'm a part of this culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, it'd be super interesting to hear if that changed or how you feel like that changed during your time at High Beast where like brands I think went from having a strong individual identity, they swung out and then it was like I need to be signaling X Y and Z and so they like dilute down what they are. Mm-hmm. To be inclusive in you know X Y and Z domain.
1: So I think there's a lot of different factors there that need to be kind of like broken down. I still really believe that the the downfall of modern media really has come at the hands of advertising because of the need to optimize and to really just treat one click as the same as everything, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's I spent you know a ton of time researching to create this one piece of content versus hey this is like a repost of a tweet from. Cardi B, whatever it may be, right? So I think that in general pushed us towards a certain type of content generation, which meant that what's the optimal way of creating that to elicit a piece of the discussion? And that part is really interesting because as it stands currently, like I agree there's a lack of ability to be different because sometimes it just gets lost. For the, There's a kind of like a, a belief in my eyes right now and I've, I've I used to push very heavily against it. If there is a trend that's going on, to not be part of the trend is the right thing to do. But sometimes there is a shared common language in playing in the trend. And that's not really an original thought from me either. That's like from uh, this Joshua Kissy oh, tunnel. Yeah. Like yeah. he talks about it. And he's like, you know, sometimes it's not bad to play in trends because automatically that's almost like my Trojan horse into another opportunity to speak to you about something else. Yeah. Right. So I think that's really interesting. But there are always going to be people that have different interests into why they want to participate in creative culture. Right do you yeah. want to be a celebrity? do you just trying to make money a quick buck? Those are all opportunities that exist, but you know as as a lot of people say, it's like if you're the one that's continually being referential, then at what happens when your references dry out, yeah that could happen, but if you're always able to reinvent yourself, then that also changes. but then to add even more complexity on top of that, sometimes if you're too experimental too ahead of the curve, then no one understands you, and I think within culture like if things are too complex people are very easy to just like move on like I don't want to I don't care I don't I don't want to spend the time to understand why it's important or maybe yeah even one step back is like people aren't if you're the one communicating the message you're not doing a good enough job to communicate why it's important but beyond that like you mentioned rhetoric right you mentioned that we're at a point in time where we have to create sort of a context to why something's important so coming from having sort of this educational background or understanding the value in that what is the challenge that exists between if you have a positive message versus you have a message that serves as a way to sell something to somebody? How do those two compete against one another? That's also a challenge that making endures. It's like, I probably cannot give you something that is going to make you feel super excited or laugh in the first like 10 seconds. Because in a lot of times if you go on, that's what social media is, right? Like here's a 15 second clip and like, oh, it'll be funny and then move on.
0: To the earlier point about like making messages land with the audience, I think that's something that Macon does pretty well because you have a core story. like you have, you have the Joshua Kissy story, the interview, and then you guys have broken that up into a bunch of different entry points. So you have Instagram posts, story posts, different clips here and there that are all like different doors into the content. I don't know what that looks like on some of the other channels, but at least on Instagram, you guys seem to do a good job of providing those diverse entries. And I think that's become more a part of the job of people who are creating content to say, I have this story, I have this message, I have something that I want to share. And I think there are these, you know, N number of audiences that might be interested. How can I give them the sliver that it, like speaks to them best and use that as the way in? And yeah. I think that, you know, going back to the brand conversation, that's probably what a lot of those attempts were was like hey you know I'm Nike I'm still trying to sell you shoes but you might be interested in these shoes because you care about this community mm-hmm. and here's a connection to that community it definitely requires a lot more work and a lot more intentionality that also I think is masked in a lot of these processes like yeah. they just people just see the output and they're like oh that doesn't resonate with me next yeah but it totally resonates with someone else and that gets lost yeah
1: the one thing that I feel is a bit of a challenge is that everything that we do currently, like if it's not on the basis of selling something, like if it's building something long term, it's really about just how net positive you are. Like you, that's the only way you can really look at it. It's like, hey, you know what? I'm making an incremental change, but then the silver lining always has to be at least it's making a change. At the end of the day, the message that a lot of people feel they believe to be the right message might not resonate, right? But as long yeah. as you personally feel it's correct, like have at it and just like try to hit as many people as you can. Um, so, like, having said that, like maybe the making message is the wrong message for some people, which is fine. Yeah. But what I've always tried to figure out is like, hey, you know what? what is, are we in a point in time where we have to just settle for the fact that just being net positive is good enough?
0: Yeah, I I think about this a lot with regards to how I've been using Twitter lately, and I I think it's that like, there are so many interesting conversations going on in the world right now about gender issues, about political issues, about things where either I'm not best equipped to speak, or or maybe I don't have something to say. And what I've tried to do is amplify other people's voices that I found interesting or or more important part of the conversation, and like give space to them. And it feels like, in some regards, that's what you guys are doing with making of like here are these things that you see as good or, or true or interesting or valuable to the world and you're like shining a light on them. Um, like I shared Tonal with a bunch of people and they were like blown away that that existed and like the depth that they you know, Joshua and the team had put together and like that wouldn't have happened without you. But I do think we're at an interesting point of like when you're starting out and you're like trying to find your voice and your style and like learn the ropes, it's definitely hard to immediately turn that into, well, I'm going to learn how to use a camera And I'm going to tell an interesting story, right? Like you have to go through some awkwardness of Mm -hmm. just like taking shitty photos. Yeah. And I think we're often very quick to judge when we look at other people because we can't see where they are in that process. I'm a cyclist. I think about this a lot when I'm biking. Mm -hmm. When like someone passes me or I pass someone, I try really hard not to make a judgment about it because I have no idea how many miles they've ridden. I have no idea what's going on in their life. So like me being like, oh, I just passed someone like, it could feel good because yes, I like was moving faster, but maybe they're like a hundred miles in and I started riding. So like that doesn't actually yeah. mean anything. Yeah. Uh, and I think I've been trying to take that same philosophy to other things and just be like, what is it that they're putting out? And like, yeah, cool. Thank you for bringing 100%. that
1: 100%. I felt like when I was younger, I was very judgmental. And to an extent, like it's challenging too, because when you, as you get older, I think experience generally tips into being more judgmental because you have, you know what you like you you've theoretically seen more than someone that's 10 years younger than you. But then what I have to catch myself and really kind of walk back on is that in in the whole realm of like creating something new, it's so challenging that the, by virtue of someone actually out there doing it it should be rewarded and celebrated. I don't think we do that enough. No, you know, like I think that's the one thing that we need to kind of come to terms with. And, there was a certain level of dehumanization when I was at Hypebeast because I would get, just throw a number of, let's say 100 emails a day on people like working on new brands. And like a lot of it just maybe in our eyes wasn't very good. And you would just be like, oh, yo, this is so whack. This, this shit sucks. And like, but the reality is that, yo, someone is trying. And I also lament that currently, as we start moving away from the ability to have smaller independent voices as media companies and media platforms, we just generally have pushed the whole ship and weighted ourselves heavily on things that already have a voice. So that means that if you're, you know, that sort of young brand or that young artist, like virality is really not the expectation. It's like a rarity. But, you know, in some ways the internet has sort of promoted that. Like anyone can be viral, but it's really, it's very rare. So if you look back on it, there's no opportunity for people to actually grow because the gatekeepers... Are generally there already and defined and like you can't be a small brand that started off taking mediocre photos on your bedroom floor you really need to have a certain level of finesse from day one which is not bad either i think it's just like the reality of the situation
0: yeah to your point about being judgmental eight years ago now i had upper and lower jaw surgery and had to like relearn how to eat and i I've, I've been very fortunate in my life i haven't really been injured i'm very able bodied and so that was the first experience i had of like okay i've spent 21 years eating but now i can't and it was a really good reminder that like everyone is fighting a different battle that are just completely invisible to you and like and that was a big transition point for me of like looking at other people and just being like you're putting something out in the world thank you yeah but it it's it's something that, like, even I catch myself now and I'll look at stuff and be like, oh, that photo is not that great. I'm like, but I don't know where they came from. I don't know, yeah. like, who am I to judge
1: that? Exactly. I think it's something that needs to be reinforced and promoted more, especially in a point in time when there's so much negativity. You know, obviously you use Twitter a lot. I use Twitter a lot. And some people get really burnt out by the fact that there's so much bullshit going on. But I think at the same time, it's it's when you do find those those moments of positivity. It's like, hey, you know, what? like double down on it.
0: I've been trying really hard to spend more time around people and ideas that energize me. And it's been a weird transition, I think, I imagine for you as well, like people who have been in different places and like you have a a wide, loose network to like focus down on, you know, a handful of people or a handful of things. And like that becomes part of your day. But it's also very freeing because you're like I'm spending time around things that are positive for me that I feel like I'm giving positive energy into the world but it's not something that's reinforced publicly like anywhere
1: mm-hmm.
0: and especially with you know instagram and and media people looking for you know virality people looking for bigger bigger impact or oh, yeah. or bigger you know influence it's hard because especially when you when you start spreading yourself thin across those things, you lose your original voice, right? Like I think a lot of people I know who are super creative, they spend some time incubating their own ideas and they just have to say no to the outside world to do that. But that's also not super well talked about.
1: Social media is a way for us all to present a perfect picture of our lives. This intense curation has led us to a point where we fear making mistakes in public. Without making mistakes... And being open to criticism of our work, we limit ourselves. Growth can't happen unless we begin to value and work on our vulnerability. The one thing that you mentioned about finding good conversations, I would say that in general, having a medium or a platform like Megan has opened up the opportunity for those conversations. Like this conversation, these are like the moments that I live for in terms of someone else's perspective, someone else helping me even work through my thought process or things that I I'm unsure about or uncertain about. And it's interesting because these conversations have the ability to exist more often than not, but they're not really explored or at least housed in a certain place. I mean, yeah. podcasts in a way are like that, yeah. which is what it is. But I think from the creative perspective, like I'm not saying making is like the only one that does it, but I would want to see more of it.
0: Going back to people giving themselves permission. A lot of people don't necessarily know how to be vulnerable or at least, a lot of people I've talked to as they're going through the creative process, it takes them a while to get to a place where they're comfortable enough with their own ideas that they're willing to put them out there and, and let other people challenge them without it feeling like a personal attack. Yeah. And I think that, like, to your point about encouraging more creation, like, we want more people creating things and like telling their stories. And we want that to be okay because it's their story. And also to realize that, like, that may not resonate with you and I may have a different take and that's my lived reality and, like, that's totally fine.
1: Yeah, and that level of sort of vulnerability is also challenging because what social media has done, it has reinforced personal brand because we know that that engagement comes from personal brand in terms of like coming to an Instagram and knowing you just do one thing.
0: There is a really good it was like Paul Graham and Taylor Pearson, they talk about identity and how one of the most important things about identity is to like constrain it to be the fewest things in terms of like the less well-defined you are, the more flexibility you have to be anything. And so when people start branding themselves as like a photographer, you're like inviting other people to only see you through that lens and mm-hmm. to limit how they see your contributions to those things. And that's kind of unfortunate because we're all multi-dimensional people yeah. and you should welcome any of that yeah but to your point like the media almost wants you to be in a box they're like okay eugene what do you do yeah like what's your title where do you work how should i understand the lens that you're bringing yeah and it it's never one thing but we get pushed into that corner all the time
1: yeah and yeah to that point too i've been thinking about this a lot because i think someone brought this up to me they said that in in europe there's less of an inclination to ask someone what their title is right but in the u.s like within you know the first few sentences like where do you work and what do you do? Right? Yeah,
0: I've tried really hard over the last six months to when when people are like telling me about a friend, and actually CC is super good about this. I'll um, be like, oh yeah, I want you to meet so and so. I'm like, instead of saying what do they do, I'm like, oh, what do you value about them?
1: Yeah, that's a good way.
0: And and it ends up being a much more interesting conversation because it's not like oh this is my friend Bob, Bob works at company. It's like oh I met Bob through painting. And I think he has a really interesting take on music. And you're like, cool. Yeah. Now I have some things about Bob that just tell me about him as a person, not that he like does this job and like sits in this office. And
1: I think those moments of just uh, that are less structured, less defined by hate, hey, the transactional nature. Like my, my wife kind of shits on me sometimes. She's like, oh, like you, I feel as though you're very transactional. And like, I don't know if it's transactional so much as that I know the value that I that I'm looking for. No, I I think that transactional element is something interesting because we've gotten to a point where, you know, as you mentioned, the whole rocking horse thing. It's like more meetings means is it movement or is it progress? More time spent. Like I, what I like to do is just like you could give me six hours and like just talk to interesting people, and that to me has become what's far more fascinating because I currently feel as though I don't get that excited about going to places. I get excited about meeting the people in those places? Yeah. With years spent researching social media, Bezod is acutely aware of limiting his connections to social platforms for both mental and more literal reasons. We're living in a generation where we're actively broadcasting our lives for others to see and interact with. But there's now less and less opportunity for us to figure out ourselves without the gaze of millions of people judging every move. One thing I am interested to know is that we've all sort of heard what are the downfalls of, call it social media overusage, right? Whether it's psychological issues, like how do you personally look at that in terms of knowing how it works and are you susceptible to it?
0: I tend to think of like how well people can do anything on three axes. Like they need to know it's possible. They need to have like the resources and agency and ability to like actually achieve that. And then they have to care about that outcome. So like I think managing social media ends up or or managing media, right? Like a lot of people say they care. They may or may not know how it's possible. And then they may or may not have like the technical ability or, or like time or resources or whatever to like manage it in the right way. I think, you know, going back to our conversation about fewer being maybe where we're spending more of our time, I limit a ton of the notifications I get just because I figured out what are the things that need my attention immediately and what can be delayed. And some of that is a negotiation with like my team and my friends and my girlfriend and whatnot. But I think a lot of people don't necessarily either have the technical skill Or spend enough time really digging into figuring out how to manage things in the way that makes sense. And I think a lot of companies don't actually have the right kind of controls built to acknowledge how people want to manage things, right? Like if you think about a lot of like Facebook makes money based on attention. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily in their best interest to give you the best controls over how Facebook notifies you about things, Right. But it's also really hard if you were to think about, like, in a given day, how you'd want to be notified of certain things. Like, what would those rules actually look like?
1: What would they look like to you?
0: My, like, stack ranking is my, like, family, my girlfriend, my roommate are, like, people that I would always want to hear from. Mm -hmm. And I can mostly get that done through, like, iMessage and other things. I wish that I could build that rule out for, like, you know, my my roommate and I are both cyclists. We have a Slack channel or a Slack workspace. I would love for his notifications there to always be pushed through, like even if I had do not disturb on. But that's a global rule that would have to exist. Like at the iOS level, Apple hasn't built that. So like already there's friction. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's basically like the notifications I get are things that people actually send me with the exception of email, which is turned off. And then like banks and financial stuff. Like I want to know when my credit card gets scanned. And mm-hmm. But aside from that, I pretty much have everything else turned off.
1: I guess another layer to that is that we... we probably both acknowledge that social media is always a representation of our best foot forward how have you looked at that and do you always have to catch yourself when you see I'm, I'm making this up but like oh this is someone that you went to school with and they're now doing this and it's like amazing or how have you personally looked at that
0: the best thing to remember is like people are choosing what goes out right and so there's always some level of not misrepresentation, but like there's more to the story. Um, There's a really good quote from Kenneth Burke. So going back to like one of the things that school is helpful for. And the quote is something like, in that every word is like a selection of reality. It's both a reflection of reality and a deflection of reality. And so I try to think about that. Like everything that I'm being shown was a choice. And that choice highlights certain things and it like suppresses others. Sometimes it's helpful to just take that next step and like, okay, Eugene just posted this photo. It looks like they're having a great time. He's probably trying to say like, hey, we had a great time. Like him and his wife are having fun. You know, I, I'm going to now see a beautiful photo of your office and know that like in the back of the office, there is a bunch of other, shit. Other There's stuff. A bunch of photo equipment. Yeah. And that, that's part of life, right? Like, I think it would be strange for us to go about living completely in public for everyone else. Like, I don't want to be a part of the Truman Show. And I, I think that, you know, to our, our conversation about creatives, like having room to explore the biggest concern I have with the way that media has progressed is for younger and younger people, there's less space for them to try to figure out who they are without the eyes of a million people watching. Yeah. And like the internet doesn't forget. And I don't know about you, I did a lot of dumb shit when I was like 13 or 14. Man. I'm really glad a lot of it's not on the internet. Yeah. And I, I think that's really hard because you you get trained so early to be performative in a way that... Totally. ...isn't helpful for your growth. Like we sh- we grow through making mistakes. And the more that your mistakes are cataloged for other people, the like less inclined you are to make mistakes. And, and this feeds into the conversation about creativity. Like If I'm not incentivized in any way to make mistakes in public, then all of my stuff is going to be super safe. It's going to be very sanitized. All of our art is going to look the same. All of the media is going to look the same. Until people are willing to like put themselves out there and be like, I'm going to fuck up, but I'm going to fuck up in this way because I want to put this out there. And then they've created a new style that is now safe, mm-hmm. right? And so that's that's like essentially what tastemaking is. Someone who's got a new style and they're like, hey, here's this thing, you can do it too. People hop into that trend and, like, and that progresses.
1: Mm-hmm. Social media has been inherently based on personal connections, often in a public sphere. Bezod's role at the messaging platform Slack is based heavily around the world of work. But working attitudes change from generation to generation, culture to culture, and company to company designing a central hub for all types of business has been a challenge for Slack. It has looked to research led by people like Bezod, who pull from global cultures and his own intuitions to find broader solutions. Before you joined Slack, how would you describe it and what has been sort of the changing definition of it as you spent more time there for people that aren't even familiar with Slack? Like how would you describe it?
0: So before I joined the company, I only was using the products with the people that I rode bikes with um. And we went from having like a Facebook group to a Slack workspace. And that helped us because we went from having like posts with a lot of people commenting to like different channels that were dedicated for like dirt, ride calls, non-bike stuff like photography or whatever. And so I think before that, I looked at it just like a better chat application, messaging, forums, like a space for people to gather and like organize conversation around ideas I think a lot of the core of that is true now that I've been at the company and like seen some of these things. But in a lot of ways, like Slack is really trying to be a central hub for your work. And like, that's why we want to plug in the tools that you use so that your work actually gets better. So w- one of the best examples, I think, is, um, expense reports before and after Slack. So before Slack, if like you're my boss, I file an expense report, you get an email, you have to click the link on the email, go to the website. Like open one password, type in your password, look at the expense report, see if it's like been approved or whatever. If it's all compliant, you hit accept. In Slack, you can have like a bot, like an expense bot that says, hey, Eugene, base file the expense report. It's totally compliant. And then you can hit a button that either says like approve, review or reject, and you're done. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that we're replacing that tool, but we're giving you a better hopefully simpler, more pleasant way of doing that same interaction that works with whatever system you have. Mm-hmm. And I think we're starting to see that in a lot of different ways. So we see people who are like monitoring their sales funnel and they can update, you know, leads and move them through the flow yeah. by just being in Slack and they don't have to go into Salesforce necessarily. Mm-hmm. Or engineering teams that are like deploying and they have monitoring services like in Slack. Yeah. Um, and so it's just a place to align a lot of the tools you're already using in a Format that I think is much more accessible to people. One thing
1: I'm also curious, like based on your kind of trajectory and how you've sort of developed personally, going from a Facebook to a Slack where the underlying goals are different. So, like with Slack, it's not about, hey, I need them to message more because I monetize messages. I just need them to value this product. So, how does that change in terms of how you look at? It's because I understand they're uniquely different products, right? But, like, yeah. do, does it change your mentality when one is about, as you mentioned before, like monetization of attention versus the other one is just creating something really good?
0: I think what's been interesting at Slack is we like want to make people's working lives simpler, more pleasant, more productive. And we're acutely aware that work looks very different to different people. And I think philosophically, we've tried to build like an open and flexible product to acknowledge that the way you work looks different than the way I work. And the business model, like to your point, kind of is in line with that. We don't make money if you send more messages because we believe that sending messages is good. Like maybe sending, you know, fewer messages to the right people is what is good for you. Maybe I am a very conversational person and me, my manager, like chatting all day is the way that we get work done. Um, so there's there's totally a different philosophy there. And there's also we have to be very specific about how we think about measuring value for our customers and acknowledge that like they measure value in different ways, right? Like Mm -hmm. we have IBM using Slack, we have Target using Slack, we have small startups using Slack and like all of the ways that they work, the hours, the kinds of objects that come out of their work look really different. And so we can't have like a unified lens of like, this is what work looks like and these things are important. It's much more on like a customer kind of level. Mm -hmm. Um, which, like for a researcher, very selfishly, is great because it means that I get to spend a lot of time with customers trying to understand where we're helping them and where we're getting in the way. Yeah.
1: One, one thing I'm curious too is that you've just broken off different sort of um, business use cases, right? Like you have an IBM, a Target, a small startup. You might even have different elements within that where some are personal, like community driven, like a, like yep. a Macon versus business. But then now, obviously, you're coming from Bangalore where you're doing further research. How does global culture also play into that as well. Cause that adds another layer of complexity. One thing that's also interesting is that in certain parts of the world, like the way they get work done is just very different in terms of, Hey, they do not use email. They just won't look at it. They won't reply to it. They want everything to work within WhatsApp, which obviously makes certain tasks effective. Like I can need an answer right now, but also like when I look at what goes on in how they work, how they structure Doesn't feel as though there's a level of scalability there, because I think there's less of an organization of ideas, assets, etc.
0: Slack was built off of a lot of really good assumptions, and we've seen a lot of value in certain cases, and we've sort of been expanding to, like, figure out how to help other people also use Slack successfully. Um, So when the platform launched in 2015, that was a way of saying, hey. Part of you doing work is you're going to use other tools. We want those tools to work in Slack. And that's been a big part of our growth where we have like 1,500 apps in the app directory. There are 200,000 developers like building different things, mostly for their companies to make their companies' tools work in Slack. Um, And so I think we've tried to be as open and flexible as possible because a team of a 1000 people in San Francisco just like can't know how the world works all over the world. In every case, we can, you know, very concertedly go out there and try to understand what are these differences that are important? How's the product getting in the way? But I think there's always going to be a little bit of a dance of like, learning the people are using it in a way we didn't expect. And maybe we're, we're not helping them.
1: Have you guys been able to derive research of how a certain culture uses it and then apply it on a more global level. So the thing that makes me think yeah. about that is sort of the the card style, Kanban style is like, I'm pretty sure it's Japanese derived, right? I, it sounds like a Japanese word, I don't know. But you, you kind of see like, are there sort of like ways of how, I don't know, like the Japanese workflow works that could be applied on a global level?
0: We've heard that some cultures or, or ways of working definitely feel better aligned with Slack. So companies that feel very hierarchical where people want to control the message upward seem to be less excited about Slack because of how open and transparent the communication is. So like if, if, you know, historically, you're my manager, I would send you reports, you send you collate them across a bunch of different people, you send them to your manager. So it makes it look like you're very successful because of the team, if I can just post that report into Slack and your manager can see it, like your role is pretty different.
1: Which already makes me think, like I, the traditional way of looking at how like Chinese companies work, for example, they they don't really value transparency the way that certain cultures do. So that already might be like a sticking point, for example.
0: Yeah, we've just kind of made a concerted localization effort over the last year. So we're in French, Spanish, German, and Japanese, and Japanese kind of launched the end of last year, I think in November. Um, so we're still like in the learning process around a lot of that. So I don't know if I have a good answer for yeah. you, but it, it is something that we think about of like, are there things that we don't know or we are not aware of where there's like just a different style of working? And I mean, that, that was like a part of why I yeah. was in India of like, what does work look like in India? And yeah. are there things we need to be aware of that we're not where like the product is just totally misaligned or, or hurting in a way that we're not aware of? Yeah.
1: What does it mean when we're continually optimizing or creating more pleasant working experiences? Does it reinforce the notion that we should continue to just like work, work, work?
0: Slack and Facebook are very different in that way. Like Facebook provided all the meals all the time. There were many people who spent 14, 15 hours a day there. Slack as a company is very intentional about not doing that. So we get lunch on Mondays, Mostly because that's like when new hires come in. And so we want them to be able to have lunch with their team and not have to worry about that. Um, We have a gather hour on Thursday afternoons. So sometimes there's like a theme, food, drinks, et cetera. Um, And then breakfast on Fridays. But the goal of that is actually like we're a part of a community and we should step out of the office and like be a part of that community. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we think a lot about of like, how do we build tools that help people spend less time doing things that are not productive parts of work. And ideally, like if you're spending less time on the not great stuff, you're more efficient, but you're also not trapped in the office as much, right? Like, and, and I think this is incredibly true on on mobile and as some of the apps have expanded. So like we as a company are very good about that kind of work hard, go home. And like Stuart Butterfield, the CEO, um, talks about like, for you to be a good employee, you also need to be a good person. You need to be a good father, brother, you know, son, et cetera. And so being outside of the office is actually a really important part of what you bring into the office. Mm-hmm. I don't know how well that's reflected in the product Yeah. because now I'm at the company and so I I have like a biased
1: view. I would say that in general, like for people that don't use Slack, um, there's a lot of elements or features baked in that suggest that they want people to create very clear moments of operation, times of usage, right? Like, oh, like do not disturb or like, hey, this is my quiet time. And I think it's important. Like, I, I talked to the guys here too. It's like, we probably should be in a, in a mindset where we need to grind, grind, grind. But I think the best work also needs to come from being well rested, being connected, yeah. all these things that are part of a bigger picture versus just, hey, how much time are you spending in front of the computer at your desk?
0: Totally. And, and I think, you know, do not disturb is turned on by default for people. So, like, we already are saying, hey, it's probably a good thing to not be working at some point. But if you look at other even outside of the work context, like look at people like bodybuilders who are you know, incredibly focused on one thing and one outcome. They spend a lot of their time not training. Like they spend a lot of time sleeping because sleep is the important thing to like make training valuable. And so I think we're hopefully creating ways where people can manage Slack so that they can disconnect or separate out work time from other time in a way that's productive for them.
1: Bezot is a keen photographer outside of work. But to say that it's entirely outside of his work would also be wrong. He's aware of a very fine but meaningful connection between his hobby and his profession. Photography has taught out a lot about people. Watching and documenting human life has benefited him in working more effectively with clients for Slack. One thing I want to talk about too is like your your passion for photography. And how do you think photography has enabled you to I guess, operate a certain level within your professional or research world?
0: I think the best thing that came from photography was the like art of watching and listening. I mean, most of what I do in my day is ask questions and listen. And so starting shooting in high school and then in college, I worked at the newspaper and was like the photo editor. And so I spent many hours a week shooting and just like watching people. And I think even a lot of the work I do for like, Music and stuff like that has a more journalistic style, but that's definitely fed into how I think about research, how I think about sharing research, like what is the experience that I had in the field? What did I see? How do I communicate that back to a team that wasn't there in a way that feels like authentic to, you know, to my experience, to the context? I think learning a lot of the technical sides of photography, learning how, different apertures amount to like different depths of field, how you can play with light. Also influences like the way I think about rigor and research, like the difference between, you know, doing a usability test or like being in the field and kind of just observing what's happening mm-hmm. naturally, doing a survey. I've noticed as one progresses, the other progresses and like mm-hmm. they definitely feed off each other. It feels a lot like, you know, how I think being in the gym makes playing a sport better and yeah. playing a sport makes being in the gym better. It's like different muscles that kind of cross-train. Leaving Facebook for
1: Slack wasn't seen by all of his peers as the right decision, but it was necessary for Bezot to progress. This decision really embodies all that he's spoken about. It harks back to the poster on the wall when he worked at Facebook. Don't mistake, motion for progress. Although it felt he was moving at Facebook, Bezot stresses the importance of learning in a happy, healthy lifestyle. Even if money was no object, learning would still be positioned at the center of his life. Accepting that we aren't as perfect as social media might suggest is an important step in our ongoing development as people. Be vulnerable, make mistakes, and learn. There seems to be a very strong sort of like push-pull between our relationship with technology. So for you personally, how do you want to have a positive impact and this overlap between technology, creative culture, and just work like when you look back in like 20 years like hey this is what sort of positive outcome i was able to create
0: i've been thinking a lot about my like relative position in the world in circles that i'm in in spaces i inhabit and like where i feel most compelled to share my story versus where i want to like share other people's and so i've been trying to think about that in terms of like especially photography a lot of my photography started with friends like i was I started by shooting a lot of concerts in Seattle because I had friends who were in music and I I wanted to help them out. And Seattle has actually like a really tight-knit music scene where everyone's kind of helping each other. And I think that's like progressed. Like I got to shoot some stuff for Essential with CC, which was just like, you need some photos, like let's go make something happen. I think that's a big part of how I try to use the camera, which is like I have a way of seeing or a way of shooting. And if people find that valuable, I want to help them tell their story. I think similar to how I interpret what you guys are doing with Macon. And I think that's something that I want to keep being important. So I don't carry my DSLR with me very often because it's more of like a a precision instrument. Like I want to go somewhere and I'm creating something for a purpose, but I shoot on my phone all the time because I think it's fun to keep trying to see things differently and like, capture a part of my life and the things that are fun or in the case of this like 35 hour journey home like less fun at times I want to look back and feel like I was speaking at the points I should have been speaking and I was silent at the points I should have let other people be speaking in research I've been thinking a lot about that too of like how do I peel back the things that are maybe true for me but weren't true in the field and making sure that I'm not just telling my version of what I saw but like having layers of like here's what we saw Here's how I experienced it. Here's my interpretation, but acknowledge that there's like other interpretations of that, and mm. there are probably a lot of things that I am not aware of that could it shape other people's interpretations? Mm.
1: Within all that, like, how do you approach the whole process and the challenge of the process and knowing that, hey, you know what, you're currently thinking about this and you feel it's important enough that you need to form an opinion? although you acknowledge that in 6 months it could be very different or it might be more crystallized or whatever like what i'm interested in is like people that operate at a certain level how can you sort of pass along their experience their advice to know if you're you know that a 25 year old creative like don't feel as though you need to know all the answers cuz i think a lot of people feel they need to know the answers at any given moment in time yeah there's that that like
0: famous quote yeah if you're the smartest person in the room you should leave I think that's something that I have taken to heart. I think in general, I try to just be intentional. And so even when the thing that I've created isn't objectively good or isn't what I wanted, it's like a step forward because I tried something and I pushed myself and I like learned in some way. And so there was value to it for me, even if everyone else thinks it's ugly. And, you know, I think the advice I would have for other people, especially in this kind of realm, is it's okay and it's probably much better than other people will let you believe to like do things for yourself because unfortunately like no one else is looking out for you. And so in your own life, in your relationships, in your work, like commit to those things that you think are valuable and important and let the other stuff kind of fall away. Like don't treat people bad. We're all humans. Be nice to everyone. But like most of the things that a lot of that people focus their time on are not as important as they believe they are. And it's okay to say no It's okay to care about less things. If you want to just do one thing really well, like just go and do that thing and give yourself that permission because no one else is going to do it for you. And I think that's one of the reasons I ended up leaving Facebook was there are a lot of things I wanted to learn that I felt like at its size, Facebook wasn't really conducive for me to learn. And so I was like, Facebook is a good company. This is like a good place to work, but I'm not learning these things. I need to go and find that. And it's like, it's okay that I'm leaving this good company and I'm going to go find it somewhere else. And like, I may go work it objectively a less good company in some people's eyes, but I'm going because I need to learn. When people are like, why well, are you leaving? I'm like, I want to learn these three or four things and I'm going to go find somewhere to learn it. And like, I'm the, only, I'm the one who has to live with that.
1: And how important is having that sort of engagement on the educational learning side? Like, is, there, is there a direct correlation between what you're learning and how engaged, happy, excited you are?
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. I am a very curious person. And I am most excited by people, experiences, et cetera, like that are teaching me something. And so I find myself happiest, most content, like most willing to work crazy hours when I'm being pushed. And I can feel that like I'm doing better than I did yesterday. And I'm like getting closer to what I want to do. And I think that's actually, was a good exercise that I did a, a while back where someone gave me the advice, like imagine that you were totally rich and you don't have to work what would your day look like? Like, how would you spend your time? And then what would that look like six months out and a year out? And for me, what was interesting is I realized that I would basically go down rabbit holes. He, he used to work on airplanes and like the design of airplanes. I was like, it'd be super interesting to, to like understand how people conceptualize like the interior of an airplane and like learn about some of that. And then that led into like interior design. And then I'd probably want to learn how to like design a house and then I'd be interested in materials and like, I noticed that I was just going down these rabbit holes of like understanding more and more and more. And that helped me see and kind of orient myself towards more of these learning opportunities. Giving myself permission to like be a little uncomfortable and be a little bad, but like in service of growth was really helpful both for like my own energy, but also to to spend more time around people and experiences that were helping me do that.
1: If you'd like to hear more stories like this one and more from the world of creative culture and beyond, check them out at making.com. That's M-A-E-K-A-N.com or search for us on your favorite podcast app.